All right. All right. Thanks. So I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Kimberly Warkowski, who's a professor of medicine at Emory University. Um, perhaps better known to us for her work in the Division of STD Prevention at the CDC, um, Dr. Warkowski is going to take something that I always think is, should be so simple. The patient that comes in to see us with that STI, and yet there's so much controversy on that diagnosis and management at the time that you're seeing that individual. So uh, looking forward to your talk here. Uh, good morning. I first want to mention that I brought some um, STD treatment guidelines, the hard copy for anybody that's interested. That'll be in the educational um, materials. And if they all run out, um, please either email me or you can go online to um, get a, your own uh, copy or you can download them to your PDA. Uh, so what we're going to start with first is a little question. This is somebody that uh, comes in and you want to do a rectal screen um, because they've had unprotected rectal intercourse. Um, they come back with a positive gonorrhea and a negative chlamydia. How would you treat them? What would be your preferred treatment? Okay, we'll talk about that um, in a little bit. How about this one? Uh, this is another controversial area. Uh, on routine screen, you got somebody that comes in uh, with an RPR of 1 to 32. His EIA is positive. He's on antiretrovirals, and he's got a CD4 of 250. Physical examination is normal. He's got no history at all of primary, secondary syphilis. He had an RPR that was negative eight months ago. What would you do? Order another RPR uh, to confirm this. Give him three shots of benzathine. Treat with azithromycin or defer penicillin therapy until you obtain a lumbar puncture. Oh, that's great. So we have lots of controversy. Um, and again, which brings up the point of why syphilis is so difficult, uh, not only to us as experts, um, but also uh, to individuals um, on the front line. So we'll get into in terms of some of the data for uh, syphilis treatment. So let's get started with this. And I've embedded this um, in uh, my case presentation. So again, this is a patient that comes in, no other history. He just comes in and says, Doc, look at my hands. Um, what does he have? These are all, potentially all manifestations um, that can present with palm and sole lesions. So again, um, look for this in the presentation, but sometimes um, looks can be deceiving. Things may not be as uh, evident as you may think. So um, most of you pick secondary syphilis, and that is incorrect. <laughs> so again, looks may be deceiving. Again, history is much important in terms of that. Uh, so again, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But let's first get um, to your patient that comes in for a routine visit. 
Um, here's JM. He's a 34-year-old HIV-positive man. He's taking his antiretrovirals. He's got an acceptable CD4 count. Um, he's got relationship problems with his current male partner. He reports sex with other men over the past several months. Um, he tells you um, on repeated questioning he's had receptive anal intercourse, which is protected, and receptive oral intercourse, which is unprotected. So what do you do? Um, how, do you, how do we look for um, sexually transmitted infections? Um, these are important questions, and the reason I put this is because what I do when my patients come in, and they know my routine, which is um, besides on their antiretrovirals, um, where have you had where have you, uh, who have you had sex with, men, women, or both, and which orifice was penetrated? Because again, most of the infections at the oral and the pharyngeal site, which are very important, are asymptomatic. And unless you ask these pointed questions, you're not going to get an answer. So these are uh, the criteria that we put in the STD treatment guidelines. They will also be in the HIV OI guidelines. Um, which will um, hopefully be coming out either later this year or earlier next year. So all sexually active HIV-infected men and women um, at least annually should have syphilis serology. And I, for my, what I call my frequent flyers, um, my syphilis patients that continue to have syphilis, they get routinized testing, which is every time they come in, they get an RPR. Um, we also talk about unprotected um, sex, as I just mentioned, at the um, oropharynx and at the rectum. Um, and so you should obtain a chlamydia and gonorrhea test, hopefully using nucleic acid amplification test. Actually, the preferred test now, which will be coming out in the chlamydia gonorrhea guidelines, will be a self-collected vaginal swab for women. Um, urine or cervix or also urethral swab is, is, uh, you can do as well. Also, the importance of hepatitis C serology. Hepatitis A, B, and C is, is transmissible um, by sexual relations. Uh, so that's really important as well. We'll talk a little bit later about hepatitis C, but the importance of getting it at baseline. And in some individuals that continue to have high-risk activity, um, think about also routinized testing at least once a year. Or also in our STD treatment guidelines, we also recommend that individuals that have a rise in their ALT associated with a concomitant ulcerative STD, like LGV and syphilis, you, can, you should also consider acute hepatitis C. In women, trichomonas should be thought of. Wet mount is only about 60% sensitive in making the diagnosis of trich. So in my own clinic, I have in-pouch media, which I use um, to look for trich. Or also there's now a nucleic acid amplification test using um, Aptima, which is also um, available. Um, also the cervical pap test, again, once a year. For those engaging in receptive anal intercourse, I mentioned before the chlamydia gonorrhea and receptive oral intercourse, really only gonorrhea. And the reason for that is we don't know much about the transmissibility of chlamydia in the throat and what is the public health importance of chlamydia in the throat. Who do we screen more frequently? Those are the people that are at higher risk. And I list for you here who's at high risk. Multiple or anonymous sex partners, sex or needle sharing partners, or a high prevalence of sexually transmitted infections in your community. And why do we do this? It's really an objective measure of sexual activity. We know that certain sexually transmitted infections can increase plasma viral load and genital HIV secretions. We have good data on this for gonorrhea and trichomonas. 
and we know that this treatment of specific STIs, in particular gonorrhea and chlamydia, are associated with reduction in viral shedding. So it's, it's also an important when your patient comes in and says he's not, he or she is not having sex and that RPR is 1 to 64, there's a little bit of disconnect here. So again, having um, an objective measure, um, getting that RPR, taking pointed questions, really important. The other thing to mention, and this is really important data to show, as you recall, syphilis rates a number of years ago really were very high in San Francisco. They actually had one of the highest rates of syphilis in the country. But what most people don't realize is when you compare those syphilis rates to chlamydia and gonorrhea in the rectum, actually rectal infections were much more common than syphilis. Um, and again, most of these infections are without symptoms. The other important point here is this was a very important paper published by Kyle Bernstein in J-AIDS last year. This was in HIV uninfected patients, but again, in an STD clinic in San Francisco, the importance of repeated rectal infections increasing the risk of HIV seroconversion. So again, very important to think about uh, the rectum as a reservoir um, for in particular gonorrhea infections. And then one of the other questions that, that I get a lot is the problem is that these tests, the chlamydia and gonorrhea tests are not FDA cleared at the throat and the rectal sites. So what can you do? Individual laboratories, um, if you're in an academic institution, can validate their assays. Um, if you need help with this, uh, John Papp at the CDC can assist you in terms of validating your assays. If you're using Quest or LabCorp, um, a lot of the discussions I've had with clinicians, I, I don't know which code to use. So these are the specific codes that you use um, that have been well validated um, at Quest and LabCorp if you're doing this testing. So going back to our patient, when you examine your patient, he said, I guess I was having unprotected um, anal intercourse. So this is what you find when you examine, his re you examine the rectum. What you see here is this punched out lesion here um, on the rectum. So what is this and how do we make a diagnosis? Part of the problem with diagnosing genital ulcer disease is we're not that good. Um, our tests are not that good and we're not that good, even expertly. So if our history and exam are often very inaccurate, HIV can modify the presentation, there can be bacterial superinfection, and different uh, multiple STDs can occur at the same time. When we look, though, at the infectious causes of genital ulcer disease, herpes and syphilis are our most common. The problem with diagnosing syphilis, most of us don't have dark field scopes, and there is not any commercially available test, point-of-care test, that we can diagnose syphilis right at the bedside. Um, PCR is available, but we don't have a point-of-care test. So we're left with serology, which we'll talk about is fraught with problems. For herpes, we've got a PCR, but again, no, no clear point-of-care test, and we rely on our culture, but again, can be very unreliable. Non-infectious etiologies you, you should think of as well. Yeast, aphthous ulcers, drug eruptions, fixed drug eruptions can present um, just on the genitals. Um, and psoriasis, lichen planus, sometimes can ulcerate. So we treat for the diagnosis most likely. If you think this is syphilis, you don't have your RPR, just give them a shot of benzathine until you get your RPR back. Because and if it's a primary infection, 30% of infections um, are falsely negative. Um, that RPR um, is falsely negative. 
and if this is biopsy if you're uncertain of what the diagnosis is. Again, to point out, we miss primary disease. If it's in the mouth, 20% of syphilis is, um, primary syphilis is oral, and we miss it in the mouth. Patients don't know they have it because they don't feel anything. Clinicians miss it, and um, most of the patients present with secondary disease. So again, when you ask those directed questions, again, look at the mouth, look at the rectum. And when we stratify by um, men who have sex with women, women, and MSM, most of these patients are actually presenting. Um, we've, we've done a campaign um, in our office and, and through um, some of the other studies at CDC to try to educate people. And we've actually had educational materials in our office to, uh, to educate MSM on what are the primary lesions, what do they look like, and to get them to think about examining themselves and their sexual partners. So let's get to syphilis. Management principles, especially in HIV-infected people. Um, what's different? They can have multiple ulcers, deep ulcers. Primary and secondary can meld together. They can look the same. Louis maligna, which I'll show you um, a picture of, which is ulcerative nodular syphilis. Um, uveitis and meningitis um, can occur more commonly. And neurologic involvement or um, can occur at any stage. So remember, syphilis is a disseminated disease. Even when you have primary disease, some sentinel studies done in the early 80s show us that um, this organism is in your CSF. Everybody gets disseminated disease, just like Lyme disease. In most instances, the host can clear the infection. But again, it's a disseminated disease. We mentioned about the definitive diagnosis for early syphilis. Our, our hands are tied at this point. We don't have many tools. So what do we have? We've got the serologic test. Our traditional test has been non-treponemal test followed by a treponemal test. What's happened over the past couple of years as laboratories have decided it's easier for them to do treponemal screening first because the test is automated, it's easier, um, and this really came about when blood banks started using this as a test. So then we as clinicians are faced with if your state or your institution is screening with treponemal-based um, screening, it gets a little bit more difficult because treponemal screening will also detect people that have had older infection. One of the other um, problems is that it's also very good at detecting IgM, so it's actually better at detecting early infection. It gets very complicated. So again, thinking about serologic tests. We have non-treponemal tests. We have treponemal tests. I mentioned that there's been an explosion of new tests for syphilis. Um, and it's really important for you as a clinician to know which test you're using um, in your laboratory. And I'll talk about why that's important in a second. There's EIAs, there's chemiluminescence assays, and there's a new technology that's coming called microbead immunoassays that's going to probably revolutionize um, the way we look and diagnose for syphilis. So again, thinking about this, I know this is hard to read, but it's, it's better in your handout. This is the traditional algorithm that you use for syphilis. We screen with an RPR. We confirm with a confirmatory test. Um, and then depending on that, we determine is this active infection? Is this a false positive? The problem with this, again, is you may miss early infection because, again, your RPR may be falsely negative in early infection. This reverse sequence screening, 
would be starting with an EIA or a chemiluminescence assay, doing your RPR, and if your RPR is negative, that's where we have the problem. Okay, so is this early infection? Is this past infection? So what is recommended um, is to do a second treponemal test. Most people grumble about that because they, want, they have a patient in front of them. They want to know what to do. And there's not many places in the country except that I'm aware of right now, California, that does a bundle test, which means they do a treponemal test, an RPR, and a second treponemal test so that you can use two treponemal tests and an RPR to try to figure out what to do. So if you don't know what to do and you're discordant, that's where it gets into problem. You have a positive EIA and a negative RPR. This has been discussed in several um, recent MMWRs, one that looked at this in New York City and a recent one that just came out um, earlier this year looking at New York, Chicago, and California. And the bottom line is that either 57% or 56 in this first study had discordant samples. So you're left with a patient with a discordant sample and you're trying to decide what to do. The second MMWR was really important because what it did is stratified people of low prevalence, which was mostly pregnant women, um, and then high prevalence. So uh, a lot of MSM and there were HIV infected patients in there to try to stratify um, whether there was a difference. And then whether you had, had, had a high prevalence in a high risk population or a low risk population, you are more likely to have a false positive test. So again, this can be extremely confusing for the clinician and when the patient's sitting right there trying to determine what to do. I know in my, my own institution, I can't get them to do a second treponemal test in any quick way. They, they only want one treponemal test. So as a clinician, what happens is most times, if you don't think it's, um, if there's no documented history of syphilis, you're gonna treat them and it's gonna be an over-treatment. Uh, the problems we're having though is that with some of these newer tests, you're not going to pick everything up. This is a patient I saw a couple of years ago that is ulcerative nodular syphilis. Um, and really what we see this is in patients with advanced HIV that have a negative RPR, may or may not have a positive treponemal test. And this patient was diagnosed by diluting his sera um, 1 to 100 because he had such a high concentration of angiocardial lipin antibody, we had to bring um, that concentration down to, to see a visible agglutination with the RPR. So these are uncommon, but again, this patient was misdiagnosed for three months um, with this infection, was treated with multiple agents. The next example is somebody I just saw about a week and a half ago. This is a gentleman with a CD4 count of three that was admitted for failure to thrive and some dementia. He was non-adherent to his meds, and he had this rash for three months. He had no less than eight RPRs, all that were negative, and a prozone was negative, a treponemal test was negative. When we initially saw him, we thought that he had um, a T-cell uh, lymphoma um, or very bad psoriasis. The dermatologist had no idea what was going on, so we recommend biopsying him. I just got the biopsy results, so I couldn't share them with you, but he, it was teeming with treponemes. Um, and so this was an example of secondary syphilis. We performed five other treponemal tests on him that have all been negative. So again, the teaching point here is that if you've got a rash, you're really highly suspicious, 
get a biopsy and talk to your pathologist, ask them to do a silver stain um, to look for the organisms because you're going to see a lymphocytic plasma cell infiltrate um, and you're not going to see the bug unless you get a silver stain. So again, syphilis is tough. Okay, so how do we treat? Do we treat with one versus three for early syphilis? Primary, secondary, um, or early latent? There is no data that shows that giving three shots of uh, benzathine penicillin is better than one. Um, basically, what this um, was, why people are giving three was their scattered case reports of treatment failure. Even immunocompetent people can have treatment failure. Um, there tends to be a little, there may be a little bit more, but there's, the best study we have is a study that was done by Bob Rolfs in the New England Journal in 1997, um, who actually gave enhanced therapy um, to people, high dose um, benzathine plus um, amoxicillin with probenicid to reach treponemocytal levels in the CSF. There was no difference whether you gave one shot versus enhanced therapy, whether you're HIV infected or not. So please, one shot of benzathine. Nobody needs three. You're treating yourself um, and not the patient. Um, no benefit of additional therapy. I can't say that enough. Okay, penicillin alternative. So say your patient is penallergic. What's the best drug to use? Um, we have the best data on doxy. It's not great, but the best data. Doxy works fine. Ceftriaxone is fine for early syphilis, but no, nobody really wants to get a shot in the butt for 10 days or um, to uh, have IV therapy for 10 days for early syphilis. I would avoid using azithromycin um, because the use of azithromycin has been associated with a particular ribosomal RNA mutation associated with treatment failure. We did a study um, looking at 12 different cities in the United States showing that it's widely distributed, this mutation. It's more common in MSM than men who have sex with women. Um, and we do not recommend you use it in MSM or in pregnancy because it doesn't reliably cross uh, the placenta and we don't have any fetal outcomes data. So here's our next question. What would you do? Here's a JM, again our same patient who comes back later. Um, his RPR was non-reactive 15 months ago. He now comes in. Um, he's got an RPR of one to four with a TPPA that's positive and he's got tinnitus for two months. So what would you do? Again, going back to our question, RPR, benzathine, LP, um, or um, having ENTC. So most people would get an LP. Okay, why would you get an LP? Um, you get an, if somebody's having neurologic, ocular, auditory signs and symptoms, would agree, you would get an LP. If this patient came in was completely asymptomatic, um, no reason to get an LP. Again, CNS invasion occurs in early syphilis, regardless of HIV or regardless of whether or not they have neurosymptoms. The clinical significance of this, we don't know. People can have an elevated protein and a pleocytosis. Remember, neurosyphilis diagnosis, very difficult. It's confusing. Um, there's not a good gold standard, and it's a combination of tests in your patient that has signs and symptoms. Um, so who should we LP? Again, anybody with neuroocular symptoms, serologic treatment failure, or tertiary syphilis, which we really don't see much. 
The problem with this, there were some, uh, there were some studies that were done several years ago that showed an association with a lower CD4 count and a higher titer. The problem with the studies have been that it's not all the patients with symptoms and asymptomatic patients were lumped together. So it's, there's no clear uh, reason to do this in a patient that's completely asymptomatic, even though their titer is 1 to 32. Unless neurologic symptoms are present, CNF exam has not been associated with improved clinical outcomes. However, our, our patient did have problems. He had tinnitus. So when you um, evaluated him, his VDRL was negative, his protein glucose was negative, but he had white cells in his CSF. Does he have neurosyphilis? No single test is diagnostic for neurosyphilis. Um, the CSF VDRL is specific, not sensitive, so you need to take into account the clinical syndrome, his serology, and the elevated white cell count. There is now some data that a CSF count of greater than 20 in the CSF is more um, specific. Um, so that is something that you should look for as a CSF count greater than 20. So because of his symptoms and because he had a white cell count greater than 25, he was treated um, as he had neurosyphilis. He got better. And his tinnitus went away. So monitoring before we leave syphilis. Um, Jerish-Herxheimer reaction is more common. Patients that have early syphilis, high non-treponemal titers, and a prior penicillin therapy. Iris, very uncommon. And ARVs, the presence of ARVs, having syphilis when you're on ARVs has been associated with a reduced risk of serologic treatment failure, a lower risk of neurosyphilis, and CSF normalization with RPR decline. So that means, do I have to LP my patient in six months? Um, as per the guidelines. So there's one paper now that suggests that you could probably use the peripheral RPR if your patient is on ARVs. So we're going to quickly jump to the rest of the STDs, and I just want to show this patient um, who I saw um, a couple of months ago who presented with vaginal discharge. So this is a woman um, that actually had genital herpes and presented with vaginal discharge. Not all genital herpes um, presents with external lesions. You need to think about that as a cause of, general, uh, of uh, vaginal discharge and examine the, uh, the cervix. So the other thing, even though this was an HIV negative uh, folks, the important thing here was genital shedding. And the important thing I wanted to tell you here is regardless of whether you have symptoms or not with herpes, you shed the same amount of DNA. So that's the important point here. People always ask, when can I have sex without a condom? Um, you really can't um, in terms of protecting a partner from herpes transmission. So again, herpes kind of is always on. The lesions may be more severe, prolonged in HIV infection. Um, antiretroviral therapy does not decrease viral shedding for genital herpes. What about antiviral efficacy? This has really been, only been studied in HIV-negative folks. Famcyclovir is slightly less effective for suppression, and that you may need higher doses or prolonged duration. I'm seeing in my practice more acyclovir resistance. As you know, there's been a phoscarnate shortage, which has been difficult um, to manage these folks. So we're using either topical sidofovir or topical amiquimod. And actually putting people on suppressive therapy for herpes actually decreases the chance of you getting um, resistance, has been demonstrated in bone marrow transplant patients. 
And this is just an example of a patient that was referred to me that was thought to have penile cancer that actually had herpes. But again, herpes can have very different presentations, and you need to think about herpes um, in um, kind of different presentations. What's new in the world of non-gonococcal urethritis? This is a man that presented with dysuria, penile discharge. Um, still, gonorrhea, we need to think about um, 15 to 40% of the time. Chlamydia, the other emerging pathogen in non-gonococcal um, urethritis is mycoplasma genitalium. Why should this be important to you as a clinician? Because we can't culture for it. We have some research PCRs that can look for it, but the reason why it's important to you is that it causes about a fifth of non-gonococcal urethritis, and it doesn't respond as well to doxycycline. It responds much better to azithromycin, although also with some of these other STDs, we're seeing some increasing drug resistance to um, azithromycin. Also, this is, gets back to our patient I showed you earlier. Um, again, taking the appropriate history, this was actually a patient that three weeks ago had chlamydia urethritis that came back and said, Doc, look at my hands. Um, and this was a patient that had a manifestation um, of Ryder syndrome called um, uh, keratoderma blenerragicum. So not all lesions on the palms and the soles are due to syphilis. You need to take the appropriate history. And this is all immunologic-based. Um, he actually responded to anti-inflammatories and got better, although subsequently had problems with arthritis. So my, fa next, my next favorite bug in terms of the world of um, STDs is gonorrhea. And why gonorrhea is so fascinating is because it's really developed this incredible ability to develop resistance to everything we've thrown at it um, for the past 60 years. So what's happened um, is that it's sequentially developed resistance to sulfa, penicillins, tetracyclines, and fluoroquinolones. So about um, 20 years ago now, the CDC set up a surveillance system where we look at gonorrhea isolates around the country. And with the use of this surveillance system, this is what we saw with quinolone resistance, which started in the, in the late 90s. And if you remember, it started first on the West Coast. It came over from Southeast Asia, similar to how PPNG came over. Then it hit Hawaii, California. Then it got into the MSM population, and then it generalized to the heterosexual population. Now, again, history repeats itself. The same thing that's happening with fluoroquinolone resistance is now happening with um, cephalosporin resistance. Um, and so getting back to one of the other questions I asked you is the treatment now um, for gonorrhea is for dual therapy, regardless of your chlamydia test results. So it's treatment. Uh, we increased the dose of ceftriaxone, and we added azithromycin as well, which is also effective against uh, gonorrhea. So gonorrhea should be dual therapy. What's happening and what we're seeing now both worldwide and in the United States is that um, oral cephalosporin um, resistance is rising. So I think probably in March of this year, um, we're probably going to come out with an MMWR that's going to say no longer use um, oral cephalosporins, only be injectables. Um, Cephpidoxime looks a little bit worse than cefixime, and we've started to see a ceftriaxone creep. Um, also, these isolates are also resistant to penicillin, tetracyclines, and fluoroquinolone. We're seeing this now, again, the same pattern on the West and in MSM. 
Um, we're also seeing treatment failures um, as well around the world. We have not seen any yet in the United States, but we have recommendations on what you should do if you see a treatment failure, and to please let us know at CDC. Um, last couple of slides, which pathogen here is not associated with sexually transmitted uh, proctitis? The answer is correct. It's MRSA. All the other ones are potentially sexually transmittable. It can be, MRSA can be associated with sex in terms of the close skin contact, but it's not truly sexually transmissible. So these are our sexually transmitted GI syndromes, proctitis, proctocolitis, enteritis. Again, I mentioned the hepatitis A and C, A, B, and C. Um, wanted to mention about LGV, which is this is a patient that presented with rectal pain, bleeding, um, and actually was seen in the emergency room given the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, went to a GI doctor um, and actually had a biopsy was, that was consistent with Crohn's disease. What you need to know about LGV, it can look just like Crohn's disease on presentation. It can look, have the histologic appearance that's exactly the same. You need to think about it in particularly HIV-infected men or women engaging in receptive anal intercourse, perirectal mucosal ulcers, you can get a rectal gnat that will show chlamydia trachomatis, but you have to do a genotype, which takes a long time to come back from your state or the CDC. If you're thinking about it, you just treat empirically for three weeks instead of a week. And I think I'm over my time. I just wanted to mention one other thing about TRIC that's new, um, that a new study that uh, just became available. TRIC is very common among women especially HIV-infected women. It's associated with increased HIV vaginal shedding. We know treatment reduces shedding. We know that repeat infection is higher in HIV-infected women versus HIV-negative women. We don't know whether this is due to reinfection or treatment failure. There's a suggestion that it may be due to increasing treatment failure. And Patty Kissinger just presented um, a study uh, showing that multi-dose effect uh, treatment is probably better for TRIC, and multi-dose means 500 milligrams BID, um, and this appears to be related to concomitant bacterial vaginosis. They have an abnormal vaginal flora. So treatment of TRIC in, in HIV-infected women should probably be BID. Uh, for HPV, um, the only thing here that's really important is there's an emergence of data on oral cancer. Um, in fact, there was just a really interesting article in the Journal of Clinical Oncology um, that showed an increase in oral cancers due to HPV, and they project by year 2020 there's actually going to be much more HPV-related oral cancer than cervical cancer um, in the United States. So that's an emerging area um, that, that folks are very interested in. Um, for counseling messages, important. We have an important paper coming out in CID, which gives you some important uh, information on counseling, how to counsel people that have HPV. Um, HPV testing is not recommended if you're trying to decide who to vaccinate or, or as part of an STI screen. What's new in treatment? There's a new biological synecatechins, which are very similar 
to amiquamod in terms of the sum of the side effects. It's actually made out of green tea leaves. We don't have much data in HIV-infected people, but it works very well in folks that are HIV negative. Uh, and then what about the vaccine? The vaccine um, in the HIV-OI guidelines that will be coming out, um, there will be permissive language about the use of HPV vaccine in HIV-infected individuals ages 9 to 26. Why 9 to 26 is because that's where the studies were done. We don't have really good data um, after age 26. The issue of anal pap smears, um, again, in some instances, um, we still need a lot more information on screening, long-term follow-up, what to do for somebody that has AIN1. We don't have a good treatment plan um, that's been well standardized and there's no screening guidelines. So I mentioned down here what the OI guidelines will say, permissive language for the use of vaccine. These are the trials in HIV-infected individuals. There will be 13 more studies um, that are currently ongoing, mostly using um, the uh, Merck-based vaccine, um, but more to come on that. And the, and the last slide here is on prevention, what we should do in terms of prevention as clinicians. How many partners um, are you having uh, relations with? Pregnancy prevention, protection, what are you using for protection? Uh, what specific practices? Have you had other STDs? Pre-exposure vaccination, we mentioned A and B. Um, HPV vaccine, we have the best data in terms of male latex condoms um, on those STDIs that are um, transmitted in mucosal fluids. And the other, the other big point here is other lubricants that individuals may use, especially rectal lubricants, are all hyperosmolar, um, which means that you can actually um, shed cells and put you more at risk for STIs um, when you're using uh, most of the commercially available lubricants. And then male circumcision may reduce the risk of HPV and genital herpes. So I'm going to end there. Um, and be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Um, so how would you treat? So again, I think we mentioned that in terms of the treatment, um, what we want to do for gonorrhea is actually dual therapy, regardless of your chlamydia test results. You want to give dual therapy. So that's correct. And then in terms of our routine screen, what would you do um, for our routine screen? So again, I, the, the point is you want to give a single shot um, of uh, benzathine penicillin. Um, you don't need to give a series of three. So this is early latent syphilis, one shot. Thanks so much. That was fabulous. So, Kimberly, I wanted to ask you a question with your patient. Given that there's no single diagnostic test for neurosyphilis and this gentleman's history and his tinnitus, do you really need to do an LP or can you just empirically treat? And what if he was penicillin allergic or couldn't come in for the 10 days? Is there any alternative oral regimens for neurosyphilis? 
If you don't LP and you still have persistent white cells, and this individual all he had was persistent white cells. So the issue is we don't really know what that means. Would I still LP him? Yes, I would still LP him. Do I have data that exists what to do in the absence of LP? I do not. I know there are some people that completely refuse to get LPs. And I try to talk people into LPs because we can follow what's going on in their CSF in a serial manner. That may change now that we have that data from Christina Mara showing that you can just use a peripheral RPR as a monitor. Your second question regarding pen allergy, again, I try to get a history of a rash. If it's a rash as a child, they were told never to take penicillin again. In most instances, that patients don't have any further allergy as an adult. I try to gauge what they've had, ask them of other drugs in the penicillin family. If they've really had a problem, then I usually give them ceftriaxone. Cross-reaction rates with third-generation cephalosporins and penicillin are actually less than 5%. So I give them ceftriaxone. And again, we talked about doxy. Doxy is a very good alternative. It penetrates very well into the CSF and is very effective. The microphone. Thank you. I have a patient, HIV positive, who's been on a medication for some time, doing very well. A year and a half ago, diagnosed with syphilis serologically with an RPR titer 1 to 64. For sure, got three injections of penicillin weekly. Now it's a year and a half later. The follow-up titer is 1 to 32. Could you please comment as to whether or not I should do anything further? So did he have early syphilis initially? Did he have early latent? Had you had an RPR previous? I did not. So you're treating him for late latent disease? That's correct. So the issue is some of this is very difficult because we don't have good data in terms of what to do. And that's where you see the language being a little bit vague in the guidelines in terms of what to do. We don't have good data to drive us what to do. And the other part that's difficult as a clinician is that the patients aren't continuing to stop having sex. So you don't know if they've developed early infection, if they've developed infection again, or if their titer just hasn't dropped. What I can tell you is from the early syphilis data from the Rolfs trial, actually folks that had early syphilis, HIV-infected folks were less likely to drop quickly. So we know that that fourfold drop that we would like to see within 6 to 12 months, actually 15 to 20 percent of people don't drop. They just stay serofast. So what to do with somebody that's serofast or only drops a dilution? Very difficult. What we would recommend in that instance, if you can rule out reinfection, is that you at least treat them with another series of three and then stop. Stop the madness, which I mean stop giving them repeated injections to treat a lab test. Because our tests are not that good. So unless you think that they're reinfected, if they're reinfected, you think that they have a history, they have unprotected sex, you're not quite sure, in that instance I'd give them a single shot. In your instance of your guy, I'd give him at least one other series of three injections and then stop. Thank you. I don't think I've ever seen this many questions. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
again, that shows us how much, uh, even though, as I said before, it's simplistic, it's very complicated when you've got that individual in front of you, what you do. So just looking through this quickly of, of common themes, um, what is, how do you tell the difference between somebody that has syphilis treatment failure versus they now have reinfection? You can't. That's, that's, I think, getting to that point. It's really yeah. hard. And when you have, like, what I call my syphilis frequent flyers that come in frequently and have syphilis several times a year, it's very challenging. Um, in fact, some people um, have patients on maintenance benzathine. You know, they come in and they get a benzathine shot. So, like, come in and forget your B12 and get your benzathine shot. It's very challenging sometimes to do it because our tests are not that. You try your best. I don't have a magic answer here. Um, I can tell you just what I do. I try to glean the best from my history and, and do my best. The problem is we do a lot of overtreatment because the tests are really bad. Um, and the, the RPR is an old test. It's a, you know, it's a 50-year-old test, and we haven't come up with anything better. Um, so what's happening, and I think what's coming down the line is some of these dual tests um, that may be a little bit better at detecting IgM um, with some of these newer treponemal tests. And I, I'm just interesting, I, from a show of hands, how many people are, uh, institutions are doing treponemal-based screening? And isn't it a headache? It's an incredible headache for you as a clinician to try to figure out what to do. And when you've got a patient sitting there, um, you're going to treat them. As a clinician, you're not going to wait for that test. You don't know what to do. You're going to treat them, and that's what's happening. The difficulty comes up with the pregnant woman. Um, what to do with a pregnant woman that's got a positive treponemal test and a negative RPR. So, again, these are issues where we need some more data. The, other, the interesting thing, too, about um, oral treponemes, you all know that we have oral treponemes that are non-pathogenic in our mouth. Some of these false positive treponemal tests may be coming from oral treponemes in the mouth. So more research, again, needed to be done in that area. So there's multiple questions here asking about serology tests, getting antibody tests for LGV and, and gonorrhea. Don't do it. So the, for, the, for <laughs> LGV... In terms of the this, this serology test, it's really been only validated for the inguinal presentation for LGV. For the rectal presentation, not very well validated. We don't know what to do. Probably, and the other problem is our tests for chlamydia. Um, traditionally, what we've used in the literature is the complement fixation serology, which again has gone away. Remember, we were taught a fourfold rise in titer, and that's what we follow. Our laboratorians have taken the complement fixation test away from us and um, have gone to EIAs. Most of us don't know how to interpret um, an optical density reading and how to find a fourfold drop in an opti or a rise in optical density. And so really for the proctitis presentation, you need to think about it. You need to do your um, chlamydial NAT um, and send that off then either to the state to get a genotype and treat empirically with um, your doxycycline for three weeks. We don't have good data in terms of serology for the rectal presentation. Actually, we don't recommend it. So we're running late. We're going to answer one more question. But for those that submitted questions, Dr. Wachowski will be available at the break and um, can start to go over these. And again, want to encourage everyone, the guidelines are out front. Maybe we can get 
uh, you to autograph some. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, this is becoming our Bible here. So one last question. You recommend against HPV screening? No, I didn't recommend against HPV screening. So the issue is that this is, again, a very politics, political, controversial area. There is no data. There's no national guidelines for screening, number one. Number two, there is no data that an annual digital exam um, versus regular rectal screening, is there a difference in terms of overall mortality and morbidity? We don't have that data. If you choose as a clinician to do an anal pap smear program, then you have to deal with the consequences of the abnormal result. What are you going to do? Okay, so you're going to watch them, and you have to have a program that is doing high-resolution anoscopy that's following these gentlemen every six months. If you have that program and you have an involvement of a colorectal surgeon that is going to want to do something instead of, in our institution, not wanting to do anything unless there's surgery involved. They don't want to follow things on a routine basis. So if you set up a screening program, that's wonderful. It's the issue of the clinician that gets an abnormal pap and then doesn't know what to do with it. Do you have, so what, I think what, what we're saying is that there's no national guidelines yet. Um, it hasn't been embraced by um, the cancer division at CDC. There's no home for it. What we need is advocacy. And we need advocacy coming from you all to scream and say, we need more data, we need more information. I've been screaming about that for 15 years already. But, but actually, the question was really about HPV screening, not, not oh, necessarily. So so I, I thought I heard you say that you don't yes. recommend routine HPV So HPV screening. So the issue is there should be, far in terms of getting an HPV test, remember there's both high-risk and low-risk tests. And there are people marketing the low-risk test. We don't see any indication for knowing if you've got a low-risk type. But some of these tests are coming with low and high-risk types. If you've got an HPV, uh, HPV-16 that comes back, what do you do with it? Um, so, again, we don't know. There's, there's only instances of data that we have for screening with ASCIS and in conjunction with the pap smear in women over the age of 30. So getting an HPV test, um, again, you're stuck with the test result and not knowing what to do with the data. Um, so what we don't have is long-term studies looking at persistence like we have in women, looking at persistence of 16 and 18 over time. We don't have that kind of data and knowing what it really means in terms of outcomes, um, in terms of rectums.